Uh, welcome to everybody in the building. It is glad to be back. Welcome to all of our family online joining us. We are so grateful for everybody. Uh, I set out this morning with a couple of goals. Uh, the first goal is to make it through today without just being a blubbering mess and crying my way through the sermon. Uh, I made it like 37 seconds in the first sermon, uh, so hopefully some of those tears have already uh, been, have come out already. Uh, I, I think this moment is a profound moment in our lives. On one hand, there is a, a great deal of anxiety, of anxiety, of sadness, because of what we've lived through and because of what people are living through right now in different parts of the world. These pandemics don't come around often, and it's certainly not an exaggeration to say that this is probably the most peculiar period that we will live through in our, in our lives. And I just don't think we should rush past that too quickly. On the other hand, this is a profound moment of real joy and, and happiness to think about what's going to happen and what, are, what is going to happen in the days to come. Uh, you know, New York City is, is back. This summer is about, to be, is about to be a lituation. It's about to be crazy this summer. I cannot wait. Uh, as we continue and continue to move more and more safely, as we get healthier as a community, not just physically, but also emotionally, I think there's a great deal of healing that we all need to do, but it is certainly exciting to be here with people. Uh, I'm very grateful to be here, and I'm also very proud. I'm very proud of you all as our church uh, for the connection that you have continued to make, for your intention to continue to pour and invest in this community, for your generosity, it has truly been a blessing. Um, this past year has been difficult on many days, and one of the things I have been strengthened and heartened by was just to know how much people were deeply invested in Renaissance in every way, and we've stuck together, we've gotten through as a family, and I am incredibly grateful to be here. So let me shut up and get to the word for today. All right, Heavenly Father, Lord, we need to hear from you. Uh, you know what our hearts need to hear. Bless us now. In Jesus' name, to hear it and to receive it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I don't know if kids still do this, but I don't know if like in the eighth grade you've ever done that thing where you had a boy or a girl that you had a crush on, and you wrote them that letter. You folded it up in like 19 different small squares. It says, will you be my boyfriend or girlfriend? Check the box, yes or no. We didn't leave any room for indecision back in the day. Now that was like the worst 45 seconds of your life when you had to wait and pause to see how they were filling that, uh, that box out. And in, in so many different ways, up to that point, your relationship with them, it could have been like very nice, it could have been polite, but to a certain extent, it was just distant. And you wanted, you desired to take that relationship to another level. All of us know what it feels like to be in proximity with somebody and you're cool, it's not, offensive when you're around each other. It's nice, and it's cordial, and it's respectful, but it's just a little distant. Uh, one of the things that has been a challenge for me in my life is that ever since one of my mentors in ministry uh, passed away about nine years ago, uh, I don't have like a pastor, a person who I could just like FaceTime at 2 p.m. And I don't know why FaceTime for me is the litmus test for who's really cool with you. Because if somebody FaceTimes you and they're not really cool with you, it's like, yo, who is, like, he must be butt dialing me. I know he ain't. Call, text me, bro. You ain't about to FaceTime me. 
But I've always longed for that. Now, I, I have a lot of really great peer-to-peer pastoral friends, uh, relationships. Those group chats keep me sane um, and off of Twitter too much. But I, I've always really longed to have like a, a pastor, somebody who I could really trust and, and, and confide in in so many different ways, and someone who would really commit to, to shaping my life. So my wife, a couple years ago, being the genius person that she is, uh, she said, Jordan, you need to be more intentional about reaching out to people and asking. Now, I had felt this void. I had people in my life who we were nice, we were respectful, we were kind to each other, but there was a, a distance. There wasn't this like really tight relationship that I had with them that would allow me to really be vulnerable around them, to trust that this person like really wanted to pour into me. So I reached out to a pastor friend of mine and it actually didn't work out at all. He uh, said, no, he didn't have the time for that. So that didn't work out. But in my life, I've certainly had experiences where I've had relationships and they're nice and they're kind and they're respectful, but they're distant. Now, some of you know what that feels like with your kids. Maybe you made some mistakes along the way as a parent, and Christmas and Thanksgiving and Mother's Day and Father's Day rolls around, and everybody's nice. Everybody's getting along. No chairs are being thrown, but it's just distant. And you long for a connection with them, something that would like feel real and tight, and not just close to each other, but actually tightly knit with each other. For some of you, it's the other way around, that you long to have a better relationship with your parents. Uh, you see other people, friends and family, who uh, are with their parents all the time, texting, and they spend a lot of time and energy with them. And for whatever reason, your mother or your father, something happened years ago. Maybe they messed up. Uh, maybe it was your fault. Whatever the case was, but you deeply desire that your relationship moves from just kind and respectful and distant to something that resembles more uh, intimacy and connection. Now, for your parents, maybe they don't know how to love you. Uh, maybe they don't know how to actually bridge that gap. But all of us know what it feels like to be in a relationship where we just want it to move to a deeper and more connected place. So many people are in marriages like that. Yes, they're doing all the right things together. They're doing the dishes. They're managing online school. They're managing all the different moving pieces. But truth be told, the relationship has gone from passion and connection and intimacy and fire to roommates. You're getting everything done, and deep down inside, you long to have that passion and that fire and that connection back. Now, here's something that you won't believe, but it's all throughout the pages of Scripture. The God of the Bible does not want your relationship with Him to be kind and respectful and ritualistic, but distant. Where you come to church, you do the right things, you volunteer on the right committees, you do all the things to check the different boxes, but there's a distance, there's a gap. If you were to go through all the pages of Scripture, you see a God who is in search of intimacy with you, of real connection, of passion. If you were to read the first few pages of Scripture in Genesis, you see God chasing after his creation, Adam and Eve. They had just fallen and done the very thing that God told them not to do. So God said, listen, you have free reign of everything. Just please do me this one favor. Don't eat of this one tree. And they did it. God comes after them not to get them back, not to, uh, to pay them back, but rather to draw them back to him. And he comes after Adam and Eve in the garden. He says, Adam, where are you? This was not a question of geography. 
God knew exactly and precisely where he was. This was a, a question of connection and intimacy. What happened to us? Where are you? What would cause you to move away from me? The heart of God, our Father, all throughout Scripture is a one of a, a God who desires connection with us. Jesus tells a story in Luke 15. If you've been to church more than six times, you've heard it for sure, uh, of a father whose son goes away, and he goes to a deep and dark land of Staten Island, and he <laughs> leaves his father. Um, is Staten Island still even around in America? I don't know. I haven't heard any reports about it for a long time. Uh, he goes to a, a distant land, and he takes his share of the inheritance, and he spends it all foolishly. And then thinking that uh, things couldn't get any worse, a famine happens. And a famine completely wipes away every opportunity for employment or for him to get his money back. So check this out. The son thinks to himself one day, yo, the dudes who work in my father's like garden and kitchen, they eat better than I'm eating right now. Like I'm eating the bottom of the barrel. I've gone to Applebee's last week and <laughs> nothing could get worse than this, than what he was doing. And that, that was a shot at Applebee's. Uh, you guys can laugh. It, Applebee's is not what you should eat. But <laughs> so he goes and his, his, the son realizes this one fact. He, he says, my father's servants are eating better than I am. And I have nothing else. I have nowhere else to turn. So you know what? I'm going to go back home to my father's house. And listen to this. He doesn't go back home because he's sorry. He doesn't go back home because he wants a connection with his father. And his father doesn't care. He just wants his son back. The old man sees his son a long way off, and, he's, and it says in ancient custom, which would have been a shame to an older man, he runs to him. God is not content with the status of your relationship being kind and cordial and distant. God wants to encounter us. As a matter of fact, there's so many different scriptures in the Bible, and I'm extremely grateful for this one that we have before us today in Exodus, which is a portrait of God's invitation to us of what he is calling us into. And a couple of signs and warning signs for us of why we don't enter into this encounter with God on a rhythmic, real, connected way. Um, and we see this here in, in the scripture we're going to dive into in Exodus. But let me zoom out a little bit. First, I want to give you guys a New Testament principle, and then I want to back that up with this Old Testament story. So if you were to read through the Bible, one thing that you'll see is it certainly has its number of exceptions, but the Bible in the New Testament gives us so many principles it gives us these one-liners because the audience would have known exactly what the author was talking about. So when the author says something like um, we'll see today in, in the text, the ancient Jewish people would have immediately known what that author was, was talking about and would not have required a lot of context to fill in the blanks. But in the Old Testament, we see the stories, we see the illustration of that principle extremely clearly. So imagine if I were to be giving you guys a sermon and I, I talk about the importance of wearing a mask. And if you're at home, you don't need to be wearing a mask on your couch. But if I were to say wearing a mask right now, it's a good idea. I don't need to give a lot of context to that. We've lived through 2020 in New York City. We've lived through this pandemic. We all know the backstory to this. Now, so many times in the New Testament, the authors would say a principle because they knew their audience would have understood everything behind this story. So I want to give you guys the principle from 1 Peter 2 
and 9, it says this, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. In the scripture in 1 Peter, he calls us a royal priesthood. When early readers would have understood this text, they would have understood what a priest did, the type of access a priest had to God, the roles and the responsibilities of priests in that day. But for us, a couple thousand years removed, uh, we certainly don't understand that as clearly. Now, there's a, a part of this text that I really want to shine a light on, and it calls us his special possession. Now, we are a royal priesthood who are God's special, his personal possession. And as a result, God wants real connection with those who are his. For everybody who has placed their faith in Christ, it's not all about what you have done yesterday, today, or tomorrow. It's that you belong to God, and that's enough. Now, I hesitated to put this in the message today because I'm really not big on titles and accomplishments, but one of the things that I've accomplished in this last year was that I am the assistant t-ball coach for the Phoenix Flyers. Um, it's a very selective, a very selective group. Apparently, anybody who passes a background test and signs up to do snacks twice can do it. So, um, but my main responsibility on the Phoenix Flyers is keeping kids from throwing dirt in their hair. That's like, if I can do that successfully half of the time, then I can, I can do, uh, I'm doing a great job. But there is one child on the Phoenix Flyers, and I swore to myself that I would never be this guy. Like I said, I'm never going to be the father who thinks everything his son does is amazing. Kids are all right. Like, that was all right, bro. It's not that serious. Calm down. But we go to these games, and every single time my oldest son picks up a bat, I'm like, this is Derek Jeter coming up to the plate right now. <laughs> it is amazing. I see so much in him. Um, and I get, like, emotional watching him play. And it's not because of his ability, if we're being honest. <laughs> it's definitely not because of his attention span, which is lasts about seven seconds uh, at a time. It's because he's mine. That's it. Because he's mine. First Peter tells us that we are God's special possession, which means that if you did a good job yesterday, good. If you didn't do a good job yesterday, okay. We belong to God. We are, as Scripture says, his royal priesthood with an access to him. So I want to zoom into Exodus a little bit and give a little bit of a backdrop to the story of Exodus. Uh, we've been walking through this book for the last number of months, in and out a little bit. And uh, there's a part in Exodus 8 and 1 where it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go in to Pharaoh and tell him, This is what the Lord says. Let my people go so that they may worship me. Now, the whole story of Exodus is a story of them leaving slavery and oppression from Egyptian strongholds. They were in slavery for over 430 years. And at the time, uh, God sends Moses to deliver them. And it wasn't just that he wanted their freedom for freedom's sake. He wanted them free so that they could worship him. God was not content with them being uh, enslaved to something else, for sure. But even bigger and more important than that, God was not content with them being kind and distant with him. So what we see uh, as the story of Exodus progresses, we're going to land here for, the for this week and the rest of and next week a little bit. 
we see this one part of scripture which is called the, the building of the tabernacle. Now, if you've ever tried to read the Bible in a year and you get to Exodus, this is the part when you, the, the blinks last like seven seconds per blink because there's all of these instructions on how the priests were to build this tabernacle. And to be perfectly honest, at a certain point, you're like, all right, all right, how much acacia wood is there? Like, I mean, what is this thing? And it's, it's difficult to wrap your mind around it. But there is a, a huge spiritual significance to this building of the tabernacle. But the most important thing that I want to highlight for us today is uh, in Exodus 29, 42 through 46. And it shows us a God who wants to meet with us, a God that wants to dwell with us. Exodus 29, it says this, this will be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance to the tent of meeting. I want you to park that concept in your brain for a little bit. The tent of meeting before the Lord. Well, I will meet with you and speak with you. I will also meet with the Israelites there, and that place will be consecrated by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of the meeting and the altar. I will consecrate Aaron, who was uh, Moses' brother, um, and his sons to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. And they will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Now priests had a number of things that they had. Uh, priests, as you see in, in Exodus 29, God's presence was something that was just powerful and profound and holy and set apart. Now, I've often misunderstood this concept of, of holiness um, where it meant like restriction. Holiness essentially means something that has a specific and, and a particular purpose that is set aside for something. So there were a lot of rules about how you can come to the presence of God and who could come to the presence of God reserved for, for priests. And nobody could just go willy-nilly. Willy but the purpose that these priests uh, were, were seeking to accomplish was that they were to go to this tent of meetings where they could dwell with God. Dwell is relaxation language. Dwell is hanging out with no agenda. Right now, all of you have about three people that can text you last minute to say, yo, I'm about to pull up. And you would be okay with that. Everybody else, you just leave them on red and don't even uh, respond <laughs> to them. You give them an excuse. But there are some people that you would love to just dwell with. Dwell implies connection, intimacy, real desire to be with each other where you don't have to have an agenda. One of the things, the shortcomings as a church that I've realized over the pandemic is that we've taught people how to do a lot of things. Uh, we've taught people how to read the Bible better and that's a skill that we're continuing to, to, to nurture. We've taught people about justice, but have we taught people how to be with God, how to encounter God? I think one of the, the weaknesses of, of that in so many lives has been revealed through the pandemic and, and in so many different ways, I think it's a gift when God shows us areas of weakness in our life. Do we have a dwelling with God? Can God dwell with us? Do we have to have an agenda? Or can we be with God? Too often in our lives, if we're being honest, our relationship with God is nice and it's kind, but it's distant. So I think there's a number of reasons why we don't um, uh, really truly go after God and uh, seek to dwell with him. I think the first one is, is fear. We don't want to admit it, but I think we're afraid of God. We're afraid of what our lives would look like if we were to give ourselves completely to God. Uh, one of the reasons I know we're afraid is when we're not doing right. 
And you can put a thousand different adjectives on that. But when we're not doing right and when we're not living in, in, in the way that we know God is calling us to live, it just makes us afraid of God. Uh, years ago when I was in high school, uh, I was a senior in high school, and it was a beautiful day to cut class. And um, I was driving my parents' car, had DMX blasting, shout out RIP DMX. And me and my boys, you couldn't have told us nothing that day. It was like the best day of our lives until I saw my father driving past me in the opposite direction. Now my father, he is known to drive below the speed limit. It'd be, speed limit's 30, he's driving 28. But that day, this dude like busted a U-turn in the middle of the street and gets behind me and is like flashing the lights and is basically pulling me over. And in that moment, I was absolutely terrified. But my terror had no reflection on the character of my father, but rather my behavior, because I knew I was doing wrong. When I got out the car and when he pulled me over, he had some choice words, which we're not allowed to say on camera because there's children watching. No, I'm kidding. He didn't. Uh, but when, when, we're, when we know that we're living beneath the standard that God calls us to live, we have two options. We can continue in the behavior. The end result of that is always a dulled conscience. The end result of pushing past conviction is what the scripture calls when we sense the Holy Spirit flashing the lights on us. The end result of pushing past that is always a dulled conscience where we can't even feel the discomfort anymore. Or we can stop and surrender and say, God, I'm yours. I know I was wilding out. I'm going to turn around and do what you called me to do. So on one hand, I think we're afraid when we are living beneath the standard that God calls us to. But man, in so many other cases for me, the, the biggest reason I'm, I'm afraid is, man, it's just a scary thing to give over the control of your life to God. If you zoom back a couple chapters in the book of Exodus, you see that people were just terrified of God coming to them. In Exodus 20, 18 through 21, it says, all the people witnessed the thunder and the lightning, the sound of a ram's horn and the mountain surrounded by smoke. So God had just given the 10 commandments and they're witnessing all of these things. When the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. You speak to us and we will listen, they said to Moses, but don't let God speak to us or we will die. Moses responded to the people, don't, don't be afraid, for God has come to test you, so that you will fear him and will not sin. And the people remained standing at a distance as Moses approached the total darkness where, where God was. Now, one of the things I think is one of the bi biggest misunderstandings in American Christianity is this concept that the real God is a God that's going to fill you with warm and fuzzies. Oftentimes, the God of Scripture, you see that when people come into contact with him, they are terrified. There's so many times in scripture where Jesus does something and, his, and it says his disciples were terrified. They were like, yo, who is this dude? So many times when you see people encounter the real God there, they're afraid. And I think that's actually a sign that we are encountering the real God. You know what I'm afraid of? I'm afraid of what my life would look like if I like really lived out Jesus's teachings on forgiveness. Like if I just say, you know what, Jesus, I'm gonna take that literally, I'm gonna do it. I'm afraid of what my life would look like. I'm afraid of what my life would look like if I said, Jordan, I'm going to trust all of my situations into the hands of God and trust that they are for his glory and my good, even though they feel like the complete opposite. I'm going to trust that even though I have prayed for God to remove a thorn from my flesh, I'm going to trust that God, your power is being made perfect in my weakness right now. That is a terrifying prayer to pray. 
But this is where God meets us. And I think that if we're honest, we are afraid of what our lives would look like if we didn't have control, which we absolutely don't have right now anyway. So we're afraid. Uh, and the other reason I think that we, we don't connect with God in a way that I know we, we ought to, in a way that I ought to, is we're just distracted. There are so many different things clamoring for our attention, uh, and we're distracted. Now, I get it. Listen, over this past year, there was a lot of stuff going on that took my eyes off the prize in so many different ways. Uh, on Sunday mornings, I would try to watch uh, a service with my family, and my three-year-old, then two-year-old, would be climbing on my neck, jumping off the couch, trying to impale himself on something. And it was difficult to pay attention and to worship online, uh, to do anything, to connect with people in this pandemic, so many different things going on. But I could blame the pandemic, but I really have an internal business at heart. And I'm not alone. There's a scripture in Luke 10 where it says, Jesus, uh, while, they were, while they were traveling, he entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister named Mary, who also sat at the Lord's feet and was listening to what he said. Listen to this. But Martha was distracted by her many tasks. And she came up and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? So tell her to give me a hand. The Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has made the right choice, and it will not be taken away from her. One thing is necessary in your life. One thing is absolutely vital to your life. And oftentimes, we let so many different things get in the way of that one thing. We're just distracted. Sometimes it's on purpose. There's so much going on, and we don't have the emotional fortitude to face what's ahead of us, so we drown ourselves in social media and Instagram and Netflix shows. Um, shoot me a comment, let me know what shows you're watching, because I'm actually looking for a new one. Um, inappropriate timing, of course. But I think we're just so distracted. Never before have we had so many impulses just clamoring for our attention. And if we're being honest, we just don't have the attention span to truly give God that type of dwelling relationship. American Christianity has many things good, but there's a, a great negative. And one of the things I've been fighting against my entire life and it's this impulse to, to do something over to be something. Have you ever felt that before? That you feel good when you're like doing a lot of things instead of just being something with God? What God calls you to is not to do 17 things, but to dwell with him. And too often we are distracted. So I want to talk about really what it's going to look like for us to encounter God, for us to be God's royal priests that he describes us as in scripture, who can go to this tent of meetings. So in the scripture, Moses and Aaron and the priests were to go to this tent of meeting every single day to meet with God where God would dwell with them. The implication for us as Christians, for anybody who has placed their faith in Christ, is that God is calling you to a tent of meetings. God is calling you to a daily dwelling with him. God is calling you to transform your life, not through explosive acts that happen once every seven months, but through a daily dwelling with him. Now, here's the good news about what it means to encounter God, and we see this in the scripture, is that encountering God always starts with God. Now, for the last thousands of years, there have been a number of religions all aimed at solving the problem of bridging the gap between a perfect divinity and a sinful humanity. Christianity is distinct in that it does not revolve around you building a bridge to get to God. 
but rather God built a bridge to get to you. Oz Guinness of the Guinness family wrote a book called um, The Call, and he says this quote, and if you don't know what the Guinness family is, God bless you. Um, it says, we cannot find God without God. We cannot reach for God without God. We cannot satisfy God without God, which is another way of saying that our seeking of God will always fall short unless God's grace initiates the search and unless God calls us and draws us and completes that search. All of our seeking to have an encounter with God will fall short unless God is the originator and the author of that. And the good news, as Jesus sums it up in, in John 6 and 44, he says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Christianity is distinct in that it says that God is always previous. The only reason we go to God is because God has first put the impulse inside of us to go towards him. Even further, the dissatisfaction you feel right now is a sign of God's presence. Philippians 2.13, Paul says, For it is God who works inside of you to both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. It is God who puts the will inside of us to reach for God. That's the good news of Christianity. Don't ever think, don't ever put the cart before the horse and think that it is you who wants to reach for God. It is always God reaching for us. It is always us responding to God's call to us. Number one, it starts with God. Number two, we need to realize that our highest calling is to God. Now, a couple of years ago, we were teaching a series on faith and work, and I was at FUMO with a friend and had that kale Caesar salad with shrimp. That joint was delicious. And um, he, we were talking, and he was saying, Jordan, you're lucky because you found your calling. And I didn't have a good answer for him then, but if we were to rewind that conversation, I would have told him, no, no, I, Renaissance is not my calling. This is not a retirement speech either. I do love Renaissance. <laughs> but Renaissance is not my calling. My calling is what Jesus has said to his disciples and what Jesus says to you. Follow me. Follow me. That is the call on your life. We are called to a person, not a position. We are called to a, a person, not a set of, of duties and tasks to complete. Our highest calling is to God. It doesn't matter what job you have. It doesn't matter what title you have. It doesn't matter where you're living. We can accomplish follow me any and everywhere so long as that remains our primary calling in our lives. Uh, years ago when I was practicing law, I had a case in Brooklyn one morning and um, I took this one highway that never has any problems called the FDR. And um, yo, I left like two hours early. I gave myself so much cushion. I said, you know, I'm gonna get there super early. I'm going to stop at the bodega, get a bacon, egg, and cheese. I'm just going to be relaxing in the courthouse. And I left so early, and things were going wonderfully well. And then all of a sudden, like, traffic stopped. And I, when I say it stopped, I mean it stopped, stopped. You can get out your car and walk around. Um, that's how much it was completely stopped. And what was going on at that time, President Obama was in office, and he was meeting at the UN. So the Secret Service cut off the highway. Here's the thing about people of importance. They don't care about any and everybody else. It didn't matter if somebody was in labor. It didn't matter that I had to go to court. Nothing mattered because everything was oriented around that person of supreme importance. If God is our highest calling, then that means we are to orient our lives around that. We are to orient our lives around God who is our, our highest calling.
Now, how do we do that? Uh, I think God asks us for a specific time and a specific place. Now, I live and die by my Google Calendar, and um, here's something that's true about me that might be true about you. If it doesn't get scheduled, it doesn't get done. And if it doesn't get scheduled, it certainly doesn't get done consistently. I might do it once in the blue. To orient our lives around God, I think, Jordan, I'm just talking to me right now, I'm lying to myself if I don't plan my tentative meeting appointment with God. I'm lying to myself unless I actually am intentional in scheduling this, if this is something that I truly believe to be my highest calling. And I think the same is true for you. God calls us to meet him in a specific time and place where we actively put our faith in action and our trust in action and trust that God is going to show up and God is going to meet us. But I, I hear you right now, I, I hear you online, you're thinking, well, Jordan, when I sit down to spend time with God, I, this sounds good, the tent of meeting, and God wants to meet with me, I just don't know what I'm doing. And like, I don't find anything that's fulfilling. I want to say two things to that. Number one, when you're with your best friend, you don't care how fulfilling it is or isn't. See, silence is never awkward with people that you're actually close with. Silence is only awkward with people that you don't really know. In some ways, the awkwardness of our time with God reveals an immaturity in our relationship. So I think that's a, a sign, not to run away from, but a sign that we should pay attention to, that over time, the more we flex that muscle, we will find ourselves more and more comfortable in silence before God. Number two, uh, I mentioned this earlier, I think in looking through the last year, we have noticed how much of our life and our discipleship as a church has been focused on different things, and I don't know that we've done a fantastic job on teaching people how to encounter God in rhythms of prayer or contemplative rhythms. And Saturday, June 5th, we are having a workshop that I want all of you to sign up for on encountering God, where we're going to spend time really going through what it looks like for us to meet with God in our attentive meetings and to allow this God to change us and to move our relationship from duty-driven, from nice and kind and cordial and distant, to one that's marked by intimacy and connection. We pray for us. Uh, God, our Father, I am uh, I'm humbled and I'm grateful to be with your people. And I, I see so much in my life that is duty-driven and distracted. And Lord, I, I need you, I need a fresh reminder to go to the tent of meetings and meet with you. And Lord, I, I need a fresh call from you to remind me of how much I am yours and what you call me to above all else. So Lord, would you meet us here in this space, wherever we are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.